Good morning. I confess, I changed my title again. You know, what, the, delivering the demoniac just doesn't have any pizzazz, and, and I, I'm not sure that I want to say that... Uh, I, I, I don't think I got this title from uh, that movie, What Women Want, but, but it sort of is the flip side of that. What, it's what demons dread. And, uh, and I really think that is the focus that we see in, in uh, our text this morning. Now, I have to confess to you, too, a kind of initial temptation to focus on the disciples. And, and I know my imagination outruns the words of the text sometime. And so here's the way I had envisioned it. And, and you gotta, you gotta, I, I was really going at this from the standpoint of the stilling of the storm. And so here you are with the disciples in the boat thinking they are dying, right? And they, they, they shake Jesus awake and they rebuke him because he doesn't seem to care and they're perishing and whatever. And in my mind's eye, I know it's probably not fair to the disciples, but I see these guys getting out of that boat and putting their feet on dry land, and it's like, oh, safe at last. Actually, I see Peter and Andrew over in the bushes barfing because of all of this seasick stuff that's going on, you know, with this, with the, bar, the storm and whatever. But they get on shore and they say to themselves, oh, safe on land. And down come these two demoniacs. I know there's one in our text. These two demoniacs, these madmen, charge down, and these guys are thinking, oh, no, not again. Here comes more of it. But the reality of the text is that it has really nothing to say about the disciples. Do you notice? All three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't say anything about the disciples. It's all about the demoniac and the demons. And so you got to reorient your thinking, and that's why I changed my title to What Demons Dread. Now, it's not only not about the disciples. It's not about something that's distant and remote, long ago and far away. I think that's the way in which we're inclined to read an account like this. We probably have never seen someone in that state And therefore, the assumption is that was in Jesus' day, it's not in our days. My friends, it happens all around the world uh, today. And this is a text that has a great deal to say to us. And so if you're thinking it's only a distant and removed and remote passage, I want to challenge that thinking. Now, let's talk about a few critical observations that come not only from looking at this text in Mark, but comparing the other accounts in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 5. The, uh, in, in all three accounts, the stilling of the storm precedes the account of the dealing with the demoniac, and that's because Jesus had to cross the sea. That's where he dealt with the demoniac. And the inference we have is, once that demoniac is delivered and he is sane and in his right mind and ready to go out sharing what Jesus has done, Jesus goes back. It looks like a one-person revival that's taken place uh, in this event. But the stilling of the storm precedes the the demonic account in all three Gospels, even though Matthew does not place it at the same point 
that Luke and Mark do. Matthew does it in Matthew chapter 8. In Mark and Luke, it comes right after the parables that Jesus tells. But that comes in Matthew chapter 13. So Matthew has chosen to deal with it in a different place, but he still puts the stilling of the storm ahead of it. Mark's account is the longest, most detailed account of all three of the synoptic Gospels. Mark has 20 verses, Matthew has 7, and Luke has 14. Once again, you have to come to say, Mark is not the Reader's Digest version of the Gospel. Mark gives us the most detailed account of any of the Gospels. Matthew, though it's the longest, is not uh, the most detailed account at all. It's the shorter version, in fact. Okay, we've already said the focus is not on the disciples, it's, but it is the most detailed account that I know of in, in all of the Gospels about demons. Now, there are a number of instances where Jesus may deliver someone from demon possession. None of them are as lengthy or as detailed about the actual event. And particular, they're not as detailed about what demons actually believe and dread about the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing that's interesting is Matthew's account tells of two demoniacs. Luke and Mark tell of one. Now, I'll just stop for one minute and say, does that bother anybody? (laughs) It shouldn't. And the reason, I think, comes to us from John chapter 21. In the Gospel of John, John says, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did, There aren't enough books to contain it. Do you realize how full one of Jesus' days was? Incredibly full of details. I would take it that Legion is the more dominant of the two. Would you not? And in fact, we'll see in a minute that it's the one demon who seems to speak through Legion for all of the others. So I take it that Mark and Luke have focused on the dominant demoniac and chosen to tell us that story. There's nothing really that different or that supplemental that's added in the other. Matthew is just being more precise in terms of the number of demoniacs, but the details of the deliverance basically don't change. The other thing that we'll call to your attention in a little bit is Mark... Uh, in Mark's gospel, the demons plead not to be cast out of the region or the country, whereas in Luke's account, the demons plead not to be cast into the abyss. I think that difference is, although subtle, is important. Okay, let's look at the uh, demoniac and the demons in verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Notice that one demon seems to be the one who speaks for all of the others. It's very interesting when you read this account that you move between the the singular and the plural. And so you have the demoniac legion saying, my name is Legion for we are many. And then he, he begs Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. And they say, send us into the pigs. So that's plural. But you still have this singular uh, that's being used where the, the, de- the demoniac legion speaks 
as it were, in the singular. And so you have, as I see it, you have one dominant demon that seems to have his tongue, and he speaks for the rest. Now, here's the the characteristics that we see of Legion as you take all of the accounts together. Number one, he's self-destructive. Would you not agree? He goes about, it's the primitive form, but he goes about cutting himself with stones, which sounds like he's somewhat on the verge of suicidal, if not actually so. He also is naked and homeless. We get that mainly from Luke, where that's exactly what it says. But in Mark's account, it says when the people come to observe the demoniac, Legion, they see him clothed and in his right mind, which, again, uh, indicates that he probably was not fully clothed uh, at, the, at, at uh, the moment that he encountered our Lord Jesus. I've personally seen in Indonesia demon-possessed people in that that state of clothing, or should I say, lack of it. Naked and homeless uh, as he goes about nowhere really to call his own. And I guess I would just sum it up by saying he was tormented. Would you not see in this the crying and, and the, the, the outpouring of the words that come from him? Just a huge amount of torment uh, for him personally. In other words, this doesn't look like a satisfying event so far as that man is concerned. Now, I want to insert the word loud, and, and uh, I don't know exactly where to put it, but, but you'll notice that oftentimes where a demon encounters our Lord Jesus, it cries out in a very loud voice. I think it's interesting in this particular case that that's mentioned, and I'll tell you why. The pig herders are off at a distance. I think the text is clear. The pig herders are not nearby. And by the way, it seems that Jesus has come and they've landed the boat in the demoniac's territory. Wouldn't be too much unlike Alaska. If you landed somewhere and you were in a grizzly's territory, they'd come down and let you know it's time to pack up and move on. This, this demoniac is saying, in effect, this is my territory. I don't think the pig tenders had any interest in encroaching on his territory. And remember it says he came down from the tombs, and that was kind of his habitat. So I, I would say that the pig tenders are probably safely at a distance where they feel, at least, not within danger. That What I'm saying in all that is they weren't close enough that you would be listening to a conversation, a normal conversation, and getting all the details. But it's important for these pig tenders to be witnesses. And so when this demoniac yells in a loud voice, when, when the pig tenders then go and bear testimony to all that's happened, I think they really heard it. It's ample, if you want to say it, it's amplified. And I think uh, they actually had the information that was necessary. Now, we looked at him in terms of himself, his self-destructiveness, his torment, but look at his sort of social uh, attributes. I think you'd have to say this guy is antisocial. People don't normally dwell in tombs, uh, in, in, in cemeteries. That's certainly not exactly, I mean, you wouldn't say, come over to my house for dinner, right? That's not where people are going to be. And he's also said to go to deserted places. That is interesting. It almost seems like deserted places are Satan's turf. 
When you go back to Mark chapter 1, remember, Jesus went out, led by the Spirit, to the deserted places, in a sense, I think, to Satan's territory where he was tempted. He's uncontrollable. Nobody is able to take this man and bring him under control. No matter what they do, put him in chains, whatever, he breaks loose. He's sort of like Samson, uh, in, in, inverted in terms of Samson was, was at least achieving God's purposes. This guy's a kind of Satan Samson that is a terrifying individual, I think, for people. He's violent. He's dangerous. Matthew chapter 8 says nobody dared to pass by. Think about that. Everybody in that area knew this demoniacs or these two demoniacs territory, and they just totally avoided it. That, uh, that doesn't sound too, uh, too sociable to me. So I want to just pause and, and make a little bit of application here if I can. This is the fruit that Satan seeks. When we looked at, at Mark chapter 4 and, and Jesus is talking about bearing fruit, here's Satan's fruit. Here's where Satan's activity is really aimed to go. This is his product. Now, some people have said, no, his finished product is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, those people who stand behind the pulpit as messengers of light and so on. That's the, that's the way he goes about leading men to destruction. But this is where he wants men to go. Look, we know he is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. That's what he delights in doing. This is what he seeks. And I was thinking about that in the light of Genesis 3. It's not what he says. He says to, to Eve, look, you eat of this fruit and you'll be like God. You'll have life abundantly. In effect, it's not true. It's not true because you see immediately there is separation from God and death that follows. And so, therefore, I say... Don't dabble with the, the demonic. Don't dabble with the dark side. And I say that especially to young people. It is frightening to think where getting on the dark side will lead you. It takes you here, and there are many paths to it, uh, many paths, and I would not encourage anyone to go down that path. And this text tells us here's where it all leads ultimately. And not only for the victims as it were, of the demonic activity, but for the demons themselves, they're headed for that same fate as I understand it. Now you have in verses 6 through 13, the, the interchange between the demoniac and the great deliverer, the divine son of God. What a great text. Notice, and it's very, I think, very significant, Jesus is acknowledged as the victor. The demons do not come down as we might imagine, in some kind of attack mode, as though they're going to take Jesus and the disciples on, the demoniac comes and he bows down. Now, I'm not sure that I buy the, the, the translation that he bows down in worship. I'm not sure I'm willing to go there. I think that if he's bowing down, it's like every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. I don't think at that moment that the demoniac is worshiping Jesus. I do think the demoniac is acknowledging Jesus as the supreme God. He is the son 
of God, and therefore he acknowledges his authority. Everything about this account shows the subordination of the demons to Jesus Christ. The demons beg Jesus not to make them go out of the country. Beg Jesus to let them possess the pigs. Beg Jesus to leave them alone. They are not expressing authority. And I have to tell you that some people, as they look at the end game in Revelation, they make it sound as though it's kind of a 50-50 fight and you're not quite sure how the struggle's going to come out. The demons know they're finished. They know. And there's no indication here of anything but the fact that Jesus is the victor. Legion recognized Jesus immediately from a distance. Now, here's a boat full of men. The demon doesn't come up and bow down for Peter or John or Andrew or any other of the guys. He knows this is Jesus. Now, I don't know how the communication goes in the spiritual realm, but they know who Jesus is. See that over and over again. He ran straight to Jesus. He bowed down before him, and then he calls him the son of the most high God. Isn't it interesting that while Satan is a liar and his demons are deceivers and liars, they have to tell the truth about Jesus. I was thinking of Acts 16, the, the, the little gal who's a fortune teller, and she follows Paul and, and, and the group around, and she again says, these are men who are, who are telling you about the most high God. It's true. She wasn't silenced because what she said was false. She was silenced, I take it, because uh, uh, Paul didn't want the testimony of demons in what he was doing. So Jesus commands the Spirit to come out. And notice the spirits plead for mercy. And then Jesus makes the demon identify himself. Everything about this. The demon knows who Jesus is. But it would seem to me in some ways the demon would prefer to remain anonymous. Uh, in the, don't you feel the sense of anonymity makes you feel more secure and you're evil than if people know who you are? And, and so Jesus, again, in all of that, is expressing his supremacy and superiority. Now I want you to look at the demoniac's petitions. Leave me alone is the translation that we have in the Net Bible in both Matthew, uh, Mark, Matthew, at least in Luke. And, and uh, it's actually literally the expression, what's between you and me? It's, it's uh, about that same expression when Jesus' mother wants Jesus to do something about the wine uh, being, being uh, depleted at the wedding. Uh, and, and so you would have to say that it, it's, it's probably on the paraphrase side, but I think the sense of it is there. I think when you look at all three of these accounts, it is very clear the demons wish to be left alone. Would you not agree? They are not interested in Jesus' ministry to them. What they would love is for Jesus to just go away and leave them alone. So that's the, the first request. The second is, do not torment me. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I say, isn't that ironic? Here are the tormentors, supreme. Look what they've done to this demonized man. 
They have made him miserable. He's cutting himself and, and moaning and carrying on, living in the tombs. What more could they do? And yet they're begging Jesus, as it were, for mercy. That strikes me as really, really weird. And then they say, please don't send us out of the region. Uh, and as I said, the uh, text in Luke says, don't send us into the abyss. And then finally they say, send us into the pigs. I don't go hog wild about this text myself. And, and I know, sorry. But I, I honestly, I, I, when I hear people dealing with this, it, they, make, they make a lot of the pig thing. And, and, and all I can say is, granted Jesus is in absolute control, they're the ones who bring up the pigs. Is that not true? They bring up the pigs. They ask to possess the pigs. And they're the ones who destroy the pigs. Now, is Jesus probably a pro-pig? I don't think so. And we know why from a, from a Jewish point of view, although we do know from Acts 10 and 11 that it's not going to be an issue for long. But I don't think that Jesus is making a point. And when you look later in the text, and it says the people came and they saw the man and that he was there sane and in his right mind, they are scared. It doesn't mention the pigs yet. I think that most of us want to focus on the pigs and that the immediate response is of the pig tenders is, oh my goodness, I lost my job, so on and so forth. That may be their mindset. I don't think it's what Mark wants to put across. What they are scared of is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ among them. I think that's what frightens them. Not a few pigs that end up in the, in the drink. I think it's, I think it's the, 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 the dirty work, as it were, that they fear they will have to give up. So the outcome. Jesus grants them permission. They enter the pigs. And as a result, you have a stampede. And it says about 2,000 drowned. I'll never forget my, my good buddy in seminary, Bob Barlow who was a veterinarian, he died and was with the Lord now, but he, a couple of years ago he died. But I remember sitting in class, and I don't remember who was teaching the class, but we got to the 2,000 pigs, and Bob leans over to me and says, that's a whole lot of pork chops. <laughs> and so it is. And, and you wonder, by the way, it, when you think about all of that taking place, you know, those pigs are going to start washing up on shore, are they not? And so the event is going to linger with the people on that part of, of, of the Sea of Galilee. There's going to be a kind of an ongoing aroma, as it were, of remembrance. So what do the demons know? I think it's clear from this text, they know who Jesus is, and they know Jesus has won. There is not any question about who the victor will be. They deal with Jesus as the victor who is. And they deal with him in a way that shows their own subordination to him in the way that they uh, interact with him. Jesus has won. That is not up for grabs in Revelation. And it is not up for grabs in the Gospels. They know their ultimate destiny. Their ultimate destiny is defeat and torment. Now what's fascinating is... 
that they're not sure why Jesus is here. In other words, they seem to have a sense of timing. And they see their, their, their day of torment as a future day. And so Jesus coming here catches them off guard and it's like, what are you doing here now? I take it that the demons are absolutely caught off guard with the cross and the first coming. Which, by the way, is not far from where the disciples were, is it? <laughs> the disciples wanted Jesus to act like this was the second coming too. Kick Rome out, let's get the kingdom going. But in, in Matthew's account, that's what they say. Are you here to torment us before the time? So whatever it is these fellows know, they understand there is a day of doom and destruction coming for them, but they assume that day is a future day, which it is unless Jesus casts them out of the region. Now, that's where you get to the last point. To be cast out of the man and out of the region is in their minds to be condemned to the abyss. When I was in prison ministry, we called it the hole, uh, solitary confinement. And people who were really bad went there to have some time to themselves. It was sort of one of those state-offered timeouts for uh, some period of time. But when you look at, at, at their words and you look at the parallel accounts, and this is one of the instances of the beauty of the parallel accounts, Matthew, they're obviously not wanting Jesus to torment them. In Mark, the torment is in leaving the region. And in Luke, it's in being cast into the abyss. From that, rightly or wrongly, I imply or infer that if demons are cast out permanently that they are cast into the abyss and they are placed in chains something like those fallen spirits in, in uh, Genesis 6 who have, who have cohabited with women and they are now in confinement and they, they will not and cannot be released. So in that sense, there are, there are demons in confinement. There are demons who are still out doing Satan's dirty work. There may even be potentially those angels who are yet to fall from Revelation, uh, in Revelation where a third of the stars may fall, there may even still be angels who decide to fall. I don't know about that part, but what I do know is some angels are confined, some angels are not, and, and these demons do not want that confinement because it means no more freedom to do their work and all it means is torment for them. Their torment is that confinement. And in that sense, they get an early release to hell. Uh, and no wonder then they are, they are dreading uh, what Jesus might do. By the way, I was thinking about in Mark, you will see in a later text where Jesus says to the demon that's a deaf and dumb spirit, go out of this, this uh, person and don't come back. Now, if he isn't going or allowed in any way to come back, I'm wondering if Jesus isn't saying to him what these guys are fearing Jesus may say to them, and that is, you're going to the abyss. Your torment starts now. The other one is where Jesus talks about, remember the house that's been cleaned, 
and, 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 and the demons decide that they're going to come back. They see it all cleaned up and they say to their friends, hey, let's move in. The house has been renovated and whatever. Let's come back. So it seems as though there is in some instances the possibility of, of returning. Now, this is rather interesting, and I, I, I just noticed it during the worship time when somebody was uh, talking about this, but it was actually the parallel account, I think, from Luke that was read, but, but where it talks about the, uh, the queen of, of the south comes because of the wisdom that, 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 that Solomon has and so on. But notice it's verse 43, the very next verse, that says, now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then he goes and finds seven other spirits. Why is that text given here? In the context of Jews asking for a sign from Jesus. And Jesus saying the only sign will be the sign of the prophet Jonah and, and being in the grave three days and three nights and so on. I'm wondering if the implication isn't this. The demonic activity which is taking place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee that's not Jewish, if they reject Jesus as their Messiah, I wonder if it's saying that the cleansing, so to speak, of our Lord that was done during his life casting out demons I wonder if it means in the rejection of Jesus in the gospel they're not going to see a bigger dose of it I don't know but it's there in Matthew chapter 12 and that's something I think serious to consider okay the people's response I, I know this sounds cheesy but, you know, I, I can just see, you know, all these people that march around places and they have these signs, no more legion, leave our region. You know, they're just going around. And, and it's really what they're saying, folks. That is really what they're saying. When they don't have legion, that social menace, how, can, how, how is it conceivable that people could, could see legion delivered from his demons made into a productive member of society, and people don't want Jesus around to do more of that kind of stuff. So here you have the, the pig wranglers go about broadcasting the, the miracle that's happened, and then the people from, I take it, nearby uh, come to witness uh, what's, what's taken place. They observe the man at Jesus' feet. Now, obviously, a certain amount of time has passed, or they figured out. Or, or the disciples uh, donated some clothing. But whatever happened, you know, goodwill was there. And now the man's sitting at Jesus' feet with his clothes on rather than, than naked. And the people are scared of that. Pigs aren't in the picture yet. They are scared of a man who they were terrified by. And now he is whole in his right mind. And they are frightened by what they see. Amazing. These people, as I understand it, these people then go out and witness to a broader group of people so that the end result is all of that area comes and says to Jesus, we'd like you to leave our region, leave our territory. Don't be anywhere near us. Luke 8.37, I say unanimously because Luke 8.37 says they all asked Jesus to do that. 
Doesn't seem that there was a minority position in this. The whole place asked Jesus to move on. So the question is, why do these people fear the presence of the Holy One of God more than the demoniac? Does that not just bend your mind? How is it that a place like this could rather have a demonized man and the presence of of these demons amongst them uh, more than the presence of the Holy One of God? Well, I think you have to conclude they fear good more than evil. They fear good more than evil. Isn't that what they fear about Jesus? They fear his goodness combined with his power. It's a terrifying thing to them. Evil men fear change for the good. (laughs) They really do. They fear a change for the good. They fear God more than Satan. And I throw this in. If their prophet came from sin, you remember the the commercial that says of Las Vegas, what goes on here stays here. You know, what that's saying is you can come and you can sin here and and we're not going to tell anybody about it. I wonder wonder if this place had the same slogan, Chamber of Commerce, whatever goes on here stays here. And, and, And somebody is making money at that game. So I say, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I don't. What if Billy Graham were to become the mayor of Chicago. I'll tell you, I think there'd be a lot of scared people. Would there not? You know, if you took somebody who would, okay, make it Elijah, make it anybody you want, but somebody who stands for righteousness, who comes to a place that is institutionalized in its evil, that's terrifying. Think of the shakeup. Isn't that what the scribes and the Pharisees feared? Jesus is going to come, and if we don't get rid of him, he's going to rock the boat. We're going to lose our place. It seems to me that's part of what they were fearing. Now, the other thing that I want to point out to you is this expression, leave us alone. I don't know that it was intentional in the Net Bible, but, but it caught my eye when I was looking at the text. You have the demons saying... Leave us alone. Different Greek words. Now, I come to the lower end of the text, and I have the people of the area saying, Leave us alone. I have the people of the area, or the demons saying, Don't send us out of the region. <laughs> I have the people of the area saying, Please leave the region. To me, it's just very interesting, but I come to this conclusion. It's easy to focus on legion, as sort of the exception to the rule, I would suggest to you that he is just a more dramatic indication and illustration of what is true of all of those people in that area. He is typical of all unbelievers, and in particular, those unbelievers in that particular area. They don't want Jesus among them. Leave us alone. Isn't that what unbelievers say today, in effect, to God? Leave me alone. I want to do my own stuff. The final scene, and I say this because when you look now at verses 18 through 20, I see this thing uh, sort of book-ended with, with two scenes. One is Jesus just literally stepping over the side of the boat with his foot uh, probably in the water, but, but setting foot on land. And it's during that time when Jesus is getting out of the boat 
that the demoniac rushes down and bows down before him. It closes with Jesus getting into the boat and he's on his way to leave and here's the demoniac again. And it seems to me that the text then, Mark, sets in contrast the demoniac, that man in his first state versus the man in his last state. And it's saying, look at the difference. Now, the demonized man has a very different request. Not leave me alone and not please don't send us out of the country, but let me come with you. And when you leave the region, let me accompany. Isn't that something? Now Jesus is leaving the region and he wants to leave too, to be with Jesus. Now the one that he feared and asked to leave him alone is now the one he doesn't want to leave him alone. What a way to close this story. What a way to end this thing and say, what a beautiful picture of the work of our Lord Jesus. The unexpected command. I say it's unexpected because previously in the Gospels, back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, if Jesus had delivered somebody, he would have said to them, don't tell anybody. That's what he said always. In this case, he sends them home and says, tell everybody about me. Tell everybody the things that I have done for you. Well, I think there are several things we ought to observe. One of them is, if you read this text as I have many times but not noting its details and not noting perhaps the other text, there is a way in which one might come to the conclusion that this man is going back to those same people that have just asked Jesus to leave, and now it says they're all amazed? I don't think so. It says, Jesus says, go back to your, actually, literally, house. Go back to your home and tell them, and where did he go? He went to, to Decapolis, right? Now, if you look at your map, I'm sorry, I, I, I meant to bring one and, I, and I, I didn't do it. But if you look at the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is, is toward the north side and the west side. And where Jesus landed is, is a little south of that on the other uh, eastern side. And then Decapolis is down close to where the Jordan River would would exit from uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so, in other words, he had to go some distance. I take it that this man was not necessarily a native of that particular area. So when he goes back, he doesn't go back to the people who had just rejected Jesus. He goes further away to his hometown, and there he shares with people who knew this guy's roots, and they are the people who are amazed with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But what a beautiful picture of a man who has been uh, converted. Now, let me just uh, make a couple of, of uh, comments in, conclu- in closing. One, about exorcism. I personally do not see this as the master text for all exorcists. This is Jesus, folks. This is Jesus. You remember that when Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration and comes down with his, uh, the three disciples, that there's a man who has a son who is demonized, and Jesus says, this kind doesn't come out easy. Jesus did it easy, but he says to his disciples, it won't be that easy for you. In other words, we need to remember we're not Jesus. Now, if, we're, if we in some way are faced and confronted by demonic forces, 
then we better plead Jesus. We better plead Jesus, not act like Jesus. Because there's a world of difference, at least in my mind. Jesus is the victor. And by the way, that text I quote in Jude 1.9, even Michael is saying, the Lord rebuke you. Claim his power. Claim his blood. That, I believe, is the key. You wouldn't expect it. I didn't expect it. But it suddenly came to my mind anyway. Church discipline. Who would have ever thought this text would have anything to do with church discipline? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. I have chosen to give one this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. He speaks of those that he has chosen to hand over to Satan. Friends, anybody who ever faces church discipline ought to read this text to see what it means to be given freely over to Satan to deal with them as he chooses because he is a destroyer. This is where he would love to go with every one of us. A word about evangelism. He doesn't give this uh, former demoniac the Great Commission per se. What he says is, go and proclaim to them the power and the grace that I have shown you. In other words, go and exalt me. Here's what I'm trying to say. Our primary goal, our primary goal in sharing our faith is to bring glory to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our primary goal is to proclaim his greatness, his power, his sufficiency. It's not just to keep people out of hell. It is that. But primarily, evangelism is praising God. And I thought to myself, isn't it interesting, the relationship, as it were, between this meeting that we have at the Lord's Supper and evangelism. One of the things I liked about this morning, better than some other meetings, is there wasn't as much teaching, there was more praising. There wasn't as much talking to out this way as there was talking up this way. And I believe that when you look at the book of Acts and you see people going forth with the gospel in a powerful way, they are not just saying it's our duty to evangelize a lost world. They are so intent and exalting in their praise for God, they just can't keep their mouths shut. That's evangelism. Proclaiming the greatness of our God, who is a great deliverer and savior. By the way, it's also the proclamation of release to captives. Do you remember the text in Luke chapter 4? That's in verses 18 and 19 where Jesus cites Luke uh, uh, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he says, he has come to proclaim release to the captives. Boy, isn't that what this is about? Who is more captive than legion? And Jesus has brought him liberty. So, it's a picture of salvation as I see it. When you look at the description of that demoniac, there is a sense in which that describes every believer. I'm sorry, every unbeliever. There is a sense in which when you see out of control, uh, socially in a sense, uh, not benefiting others, but, but in a sense, 
exalting yourself. If you look at that, it seems to me that what you see in the demoniac before and after is really a picture of what you see in every unbeliever's life when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I was formerly a blasphemer and violent and whatever. And he's saying, but God showed me grace. So this is not just the long and ago and the far away. It's a picture of how Jesus saves. And it ought to be something that we realize he's still doing today. What keeps people from heaven? Well, Satan opposes. That's the story of the parable of the soils when Satan picks up the seed. Satan blinds, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And one of the things that keeps people out of heaven is they don't really want to be there because they don't want good and righteousness. Righteousness is what the saints desire. It's what we look for. It's what we yearn for. It's what we pray for. Unbelievers, they don't want that. That's why they say, I'd rather be down there in hell with all my friends. You know, something in hand. They don't want the good. But that's what it is for us. And I I say this last, as you know, it's last in my notes. What keeps Christians from fully giving themselves to serve God? I think it's the same thing. The fear of what good means. You ever think about that? It's the fear of the good God might do in our life. In other words, it's like we're clinging on to one little piece of hell. And we just hate to give it all away. The trouble is Satan has distorted our view. Because what Satan is and what he's about is described in the character and the conduct of the demoniac. He is a liar. He is a destroyer. He is a tormentor. And to follow him is to follow him into the greatest of evil. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. What a beautiful picture it is of him. The one who has come to rescue sinners bound in their captivity to the evil one. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that describes every single unbeliever who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus. We too have been rescued from being pawns of Satan. May everyone in my hear, the hearing of my voice cast themselves upon the Lord Jesus for deliverance from the judgment that is to come and from the power of Satan in their lives and trust in him for eternal salvation and a life of eternal joy in his goodness and presence. In Jesus' name, amen.